Good morning. Now, when you gave this to me, friends, it's on? I don't have to push anything? I don't. Great. And you know it's me, so don't turn it up too loud. All right. You look beautiful. Those of you that are without your mask and those of you that are with your mask, you look beautiful. I've got mine right here. All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. And this weekend, we give you thanks that we can gather in freedom, that we can gather without harassment, that we can come around your word together, which is something we all need very, very much, me especially. So I pray now that you would gather with us as we gather around your word on this morning, in this place, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Like the books of First and Second Samuel in your Old Testament scriptures, the books of First and Second Kings, when they were originally compiled, were a single book. And so sometimes that can make a difference in how we look at them. All right? And so no one really knows the author, and um, the big brains in the world like to pick and choose and pick and say that there were a lot of... Hi, Pastor that there were a lot of compilers and that there were various authors. But if you look at the characters and you look at the themes and you look at the threads that unite First and Second Kings in your Old Testament, most people feel that they were put together by a singular author and that they were probably assembled, and this I did not know, that they were probably assembled while God's people of Old Testament times were exiled in the nation of Babylon. Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so we're going to talk about how something great can come from something tough. And so gather with me as as we do this morning, whether you're familiar or not with the story, because we're going to start our tale today once upon a Bible time. Now, for those of you that are students of the Old Testament, you understand that there was a time under King Solomon when the nation was united. Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom wasn't such a thing. They were just one big kingdom of Israel, established with Saul, continued under David, and then with Solomon. And then what happened? They split. Humans, we're always getting ourselves into trouble, right? And so they split the nation, all of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel in the northern kingdom were all those except for Judah and Benjamin. And then in the bottom half of the country, we have the southern kingdoms, Judah and Benjamin. So northern Israel and southern Israel. All right, so our story takes place in northern Israel. And does our map tell us what the capital is? It does. What's the capital of northern Israel? I'll give you a hint. Samaria. Okay. All right, see the little star on the map, all of you students? Okay, the kingdom of Samaria. And that's where our story takes place. All right, you ready? All right, 1 Kings chapter 16, if you're opening up your device or your leather-bound Bible, we're going to give you a little background. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of where? So that was the southern kingdom, so the author is making a reference. What's the next word? Ahab. Ahab. Now, I want you to say it if 
as if you were going to describe him. Try it again. <laughs> That's very good. Ahab, the son of Omri, became king of Israel. That would be the northern kingdom. He reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did what? What's the next word? No, 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 no. What's the word? More. More. And the inference, if you study it, if you study the steps that lead you to the story, it's like, could anybody possibly do anything that was more evil than the things that had already been done? And what's the answer to that question? Yes. All right? He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also, okay, he compounded his evil by doing something. What did he do? Okay, now we're not picking on marriage today, just so you know. But it was who he married, okay? He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he began to serve who? Okay? He began to serve Baal and worship him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more. What's that word again? More to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So you feel the buzz here, right? You're sort of getting the idea, right? He probably was a good-looking guy. Who knows? I bet he wore fancy clothes. What do you think? Bet he did. And then I like this picture of Jezebel because, you know, some of the pictures of her, you know, she has a pointy nose and horns coming out of her head. But, you know, evil gets deep inside a person, and it changes them. But sometimes you can't see those changes on the outside, but the influence is great, as we shall see. And here's a little historical aside. Here is a picture in the 1920s of the excavation of the palace at Samaria. Just so you know that we're not talking fables and fairy tales here, even though I said once upon a Bible time. The excavation of Ahab's palace in Samaria. Most of the workers were women. They carried away hundreds of tons of soil in baskets perched on their heads. And when the dig was complete, all of the soil was brought back and the complex was buried beneath the earth. Just so you know, we're talking about a real place. And so there was this king and he had a wife and there was this terrible undertaking of worship and influence that changed an entire nation. Ever felt anything like that? Influence is crucial, my friends. And it's not just about big, big influence. Where's my brother? Goodness, that was such a cool story. He's making friends with the guy with the chainsaw. Okay? That's influence. And you have that power every day of your lives. And in this time and age and culture where we are living, it is so much power in your hands, my friends. Use it wisely. Baal, the storm god. Okay, the storm god. And so if you can imagine, because you live in a culture that does something similar, looking out at the elements and crafting ideas. Now, please believe me when I say that I want, I believe that God wants you to use your brain, 
that he wants you to have a sanctified imagination, that he wants you to dream and ask questions and think big thoughts. But if you don't know from whence you've come, how can you come to the right answer? And we see it in our culture, people pulling things very literally out of the air. And that's what was happening here in ancient Israel. They were looking at these great demonstrations of weather, and they were saying, hey, that must be a god. We're going to call him Baal, and we're going to worship him in ways that we shall find are not really good for the soul. All right, 1 Kings chapter 17. Who's our main character? First word. Elijah, not Elisha, okay? Elijah. Elijah was a prophet from Tishbe and Gilead, and one day he went to where? Now, tell me, friends, you be wanting knocking on that door? Not me. You'd need like a serious bodyguard, sword on your belt, invitation. I'm not quite sure. But he was a brave man. He went, and he said, I am a servant of who? Living Lord. He did not say, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm cool with the Baal thing. I'm good with the counterculture. I'm good with the the difference between, you know, false worship and true worship. No, no. He said, I am a servant of the living Lord, the God of Israel, and I swear in his name that it won't rain until I say so. There won't even be any what? Dew on the ground. You and I know how things, how fast things can change. You and I know that. We've lived through it. Later, the Lord said to Elijah, what's the next word? Time to get out of here. (laughs) Okay, now why are we thinking the Lord is telling him that he needs to get out of here? Pack your stuff because we are headed out of town. You think the king was thrilled with this idea? Do you think he was just going to be like okay and easy with it? No, of course not. The Lord says leave and go across the Jordan River so that you can hide near Cherith Creek. You can drink water from the creek and eat the food that I've told the ravens to bring you. Now, the Bible is beautiful with its language because the word cherith or kareth, depending on how it's translated in your scriptures, it means cutting. So God's like, look, you've just given the king some really bad news, and now it's time to pack your backpack because we are going to camp cutting. The Lord is merciful. He's not going to lie about what's coming, except that he says... You can drink water from the creek and eat the food that I've told who to bring you? Now, he's not talking about those football players. And so here's a piece of art, because you know that I like to use them, about camp cutting, as I like to call it. So, you know, was it an opulent kind of hotel room? Okay, just exactly what you need. Not everything you want, but just exactly what you need. Hard life here, change of scenery, change of circumstances, downsizing, resizing, to move into the camp that God had set up for him. All right, now, friends, I can envision Elijah praying for a little insight in all of this change and difficulty. Imagine that he picks up his head after his prayer, and he says amen like you and I would do, and he notices a large black bird circling overhead. Its wings are fully spread, revealing the almost shaggy fullness of its body. Its lustrous feathers flash like a bluish-purple iridescence when the sun touches them. And it circles lower and lower and lower 
until it alights with a gentle bounce looking him square in the eye. And suspended in that heavy bill is, guess what? Breakfast. Breakfast. (laughs) Now talk about grub hub. Okay, this is serious business that the Lord is doing here. No pagan God is like you, O Lord. None can do what you do. So here's where he journeyed from, from Samaria, not far from where he grew up, to the brook Cherith. And you know, it was a little sparse. It was a little simple. But friends, what happens when all of the distractions are gone? What happens when all the busy to-do lists are gone? What happens when you can't open your Facebook account? Life becomes much simpler. Much simpler. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Facebook per se, even though I have yet to give in to having a Facebook page, mostly because I don't have time for that. And so here he is in these very simple surroundings. The ravens are feeding him every day. I imagine that it took a little getting used to. What do you think? Took a little time to get used to it, but it was peaceful. It was quiet. It was safe. And who was there? God was there. He was saturated with God in ways that can be tough for you and I in 21st century American culture to be. And see, God was doing something. See, Elijah's thinking, okay, cool. You know, like the king can't find me here and God is protecting me here and I have food and water to drink in the middle of a difficult and looming and progressive drought. But God had bigger plans, my friends, as he often does. And so I'm sure that he had a simple routine. I'm sure that after a while he named the birds. What do you think? And the thing that's interesting And the thing that I want you to understand before we continue in the story is the contrast between the nation that is suffering because of its worship of Baal and this simple man out in the wilderness with the creator God. You realize that the problem here is not that God has an anger issue. The problem here is that the worship of Baal was meant and rooted in this idea, and I say this, I try to say this gently and rightly, of arousing the God to do your bidding. Arousing the God to bring forth what it is that you think you need and want to pray for. So when, I, when you read in the scriptures about fertility rites and practices in the temples of pagan gods, it was really, really immoral. It was debasing. It's not that God has an anger problem. He's just like, please, I'm trying that there should be some piece of humanity left in human beings so that my son can actually step into the picture. Are you listening to me? How can Jesus make it into the lineage of humanity if the enemy has so defaced us, debased us, that there's nowhere for Jesus to land? God's always thinking in the bigger picture. Elijah obeyed the Lord, went to live near Cherith Creek, and the ravens brought him bread and meat twice a day, and he drank water from the creek. Bang! Here comes verse 7. What does it say? Really? Come on! This is the camp where God is. 
Now, how many of you, please don't leave me hanging, have been guilty of the idea of thinking that when bad things happen to other people, they're not going to happen to you? Right? This is what we think, friends. We're like, Lord, I want to get out of jail free card. But not true. The rain falls on, what does the scripture say? The just and the unjust. And the drought falls on the just and the unjust. And so all of a sudden it started to get pretty dry around here. So I can imagine Elijah in his spirit, he's like, wait, wait, wait. I've adjusted. I've adapted. Like, you're going to make me change again. But the thing that's interesting is that Elijah's name, and you know that names are very important in the scriptures, his name means my God of power, or Jehovah is my strength. And so God's like, yes, we're making a big, big, big left turn, but I'm still your strength. You with me, friends? All right. So oftentimes trials are about change in us, for us, that we need. And all we can do, my friends, is look up. All right. So God's like, pack your bags. Time to go. And so he's like, doesn't have very much to pack. Must have been pretty simple. Yes, yes. The Lord told Elijah, go to the town of Zarephath and Sidon and live there. I've told a widow in that town to give you food. Okay. God says, I will. There we go. So he packs up his little campsite and he heads up past the Sea of Galilee all the way up to Zarephath. Friends, was she an Israelite? No. No. So it gives you a little bit of an idea of how many safe places there may have been in Israel for him, like zero. Because the longer this goes on, how's Ahab feeling about it? Not too good. And so he sends him all the way up and out of Israel, all the way to Zarephath. And we're going to go back to that later. When Elijah came near the town gate of Zarephath, he saw a widow gathering sticks for a fire. Would you please bring me a what, he says. Now, friends, that is an astonishing question considering the national circumstances. And so it's always interesting to me as a student of the word, this cultural sort of step into that you have to do if you're going to understand the scriptures. The Lord had told him that she was going to be his provision. And I imagine that the Holy Spirit made it clear that she was the woman he was supposed to talk to. So tell me, what did she look like? Come on, you're so sleepy. What did she look like? Was she well-dressed? Did she look well-fed? Did she look like somebody that you should ask something of? I don't think so. I don't think so. And the fact that she's carrying sticks, she's looking for sticks, is an indicator of what's going on at home. Because what was the normal fuel in the ancient biblical times? Animal dung. So if she didn't have any animal dung, that means that she didn't have any That means they had already died. Would you please bring me a cup of water, he asked. Now, this is is just, I'm sorry, but it's a little humorous because it's preposterous. All right? Oh, by the way, he says, as she's going off to figure out how in the world she's going to give this man some water, would you also please bring me what? Friend, you need to read Ann Landers because that's really rude. 
you can tell how old I am, because most of you don't know who Ann Landers is. All right? Emily Post, somebody who tells you how you should do things. So, in this culture, hospitality was ingrained, right? We know that as Bible students. So the idea that you would tell a stranger coming into your town at the city gate that you wouldn't do the thing that he just asked you in the realm of hospitality is outrageous. Of course you're going to do it. It's woven into your expectation. And so here they are, painting. You know me, I love those. This is Breenberg, Dutch painter. So I want you to think about this woman. She was no stranger to death because we know that she was a widow. So she had already seen her husband die. We know that her land had died and all her animals had died because she's looking for sticks. She's not burning dung. All right? And now, as everything around her is dying, every tree, every bush, everything drying up and dying, she has come to this city gate to accomplish a singular purpose, which you will find out in just a moment. And she bumps into this stranger who's dressed like a prophet, who's asked her for something impossible. So there's a little battle going on, friends. The battle between, like, do I do the rational thing that any woman would do and say, sir, I'm so sorry, but you are fresh out of luck? Or does she feel the nudge of heaven saying, do this crazy thing, okay? Have you ever felt the nudge of heaven telling you to do some crazy thing? It happens, friends. And we can learn to be attuned attuned to the Spirit of God, moving in our lives, moving in our lives, opening doors and closing doors. She answered him, in the name of the living Lord your God. Now, is she an Israelite? No. Okay, so watch this. I swear that I don't have any bread. I am not lying to you, she's saying. All I have is a handful of flour and a little olive oil. I'm on my way home now with these few sticks. To cook what I have for my son and me. Whew. And after that, what will happen? We'll starve to death. Don't you love it that God tells you the truth? When I read the word sometimes, it's so confronting. It's so graphic. But God's like, here. Here's all of it. After that, we will starve to death. And so she's just putting her dilemma. I'm not going to call it faith quite yet, but it's almost faith. She's putting everything she has right in front of this man that she recognizes to be a prophet. She's like, look, this is all I have. It's all I have. And he's taken, uh, both of them are standing at the gate of Zarephath. And here's what Zarephath means, friends smelting. Does anybody know what smelting is? You do, but you just don't remember from junior high school. Smelting is when you take an ore and you take out everything you don't want from that ore. All right? You do it to remove all the base metals. You do it to silver. You do it to copper. You want to remove everything that you don't want. And guess how you do it? Heat. Now, we've had a little feeling about heat 
over the last couple of weeks, right? Just some dramatic heat in the country in places that there's never usually heat. Some of the news reports that I read about Portland and Seattle said the tires were melting on the road. That siding is buckling off people's homes. That roads are buckling up and breaking in the heat. Heat is not pleasant. Not pleasant. But what is the purpose of the heat? To purify it. And that's what's happening here. So he says to her, do not be afraid of little spiders. Don't be afraid. Somebody tell pastor what that means. Okay, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. You've all been there, friends. You've all been there when God has to be first and you have to be second. And the battle that comes over you because you're like, you got three contingency plans so that you can both get what you need. (laughs) Don't you love it when we do that with the Lord? I do it all the time. It's so ridiculous. Okay? But Lord, I got this this idea. And the Lord's like, no, Denise, me first, then you. And that's what's happening here. And so now he, I mean, you tend to think of him as some poor guy who's like, you know, pushing and pressing on this woman. But I'm telling you that for both of them, the watchword here is obedience. Because he is probably so tempted to say, goodness, I can't ask her for anything. But clearly the Lord has directed him here and he's trying to obey. And she's like, are you serious? Everything is gone. My husband is gone. My animals are gone. Everything's gone, dying. And you want me to give you the last of what I have? So I remind you what it says in 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is what? Sufficient. As Americans, I'm not sure that we know what that word means anymore. So maybe we should do a word study on it this week. What do you think? All right, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is what? Made perfect in what, friends? I'm telling you, this is like the, you know, Zoom meeting of weakness at the gate of Zarephath. They're both just sort of needy. And God is actually pooling their weakness for his glory. For the nation that they both, well actually she doesn't belong to it, for his nation and ultimately you'll see why, for hers. God is so amazing like this. And friends, this is the biggest argument that I have with the Lord, that for 30 years I've been walking or trying to walk in the wake of Jesus Christ, and there's so many things that I wish were different by now. And God's always like, it's okay. But it's very hard for me to sign my name to that. And it's got to be my flesh, my pride, I don't know, but I hate the idea that in so many areas of my life, I'm still weaker than I'd like to be. But it's all right. Because he says, my power is made, what friends? Perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more, Paul says, gladly about my weaknesses. I got to learn to do that so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
And so he offers it to her. He says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The jar of flour will what? Not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. That is a powerful promise, my friends. Now, are they both going to get everything they want? Or are they just going to get everything they need plus God? That's pretty good, right? I love this painting, but there's no way that she was dressed like this. (laughs) All right? So she's like, Okay, I see what the mathematics of this is. The mathematics of this is that I'm supposed to give you everything I have left and you promise me that my supply will not run out. And the scriptures go on to say that the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now this is a very Disney ending right? And they all lived happily ever after. But friends, I want you to know this is one of the most difficult lessons of following God and authenticity, is that sometimes things are just hard, because they're about to get really hard, for those of you that know the story. And I want you to know that I want to learn this lesson. So I am planning a crazy odyssey. Crazy. I am a bookworm, okay? I put on every ounce of the COVID-19 during the pandemic, plus a few more. And I am planning a trip that begins at the base of a mountain. And I am going to climb from Chamonix, France, up to Lac Blanc. I'm going to do the last two stages of the Tour Mont Blanc in three days. And at the end of the last stage, there's this big, beautiful statue of Christ. And I've told the Lord, I will meet you there. Absurd. This is an absurd notion. I mean, I own a pair of trekking poles, but... But I want to do it because... Here's why I want to do it. Because I want to unlearn the lessons that Disney taught me. I want to understand that every step of planning this trip and spending money on this trip and running into obstacles on this trip is going to be difficult. I want to understand that I'm going to hoof it up that mountain, breathing heavy in the altitude, and I figure if I just leave early enough, the worst thing that could happen is I'd have to wrap myself in my thermal blanket and sleep on the side of the road. But I want to go. Because I want to finally learn that hard can be really good. And that it doesn't mean that I'm not, and that good days are coming. And I just want you to know that my crazy friend Terry is considering making this trip with me. (laughs) Sometime later, what happened, friends? The woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally, he died. This was where she was when it started. She was trying to save her son's life, 
And she thought that that had actually been accomplished. And then Elijah said, oh, man of God, what have you done to me? She said to him, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? I want you to take this text and I want you to remember that the more time you spend with Jesus, the more defective you're going to seem in your own eyes. Do not let the enemy lie to you about what holiness will reveal about what's going on with your character. She's like, really? You saved our lives just so that this could happen. Remember, friends, smelting. You need heat, and you need one more thing. You need a purifying agent. And sometimes circumstances are the best purifying agent that God has. And it's not that he's vindictive. It just is so effective at saving your life, at focusing your priorities, at moving your heart. And he's like, okay, but you'll never go there wherever it is alone. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested, Zechariah tells us. Now, I want you to remember as we try to pick up our pace and finish is that the God that was being served in this nation is the God of stone. Baal was an idol, a God of stone. And our God, friends, is not a God of stone. Not a God of stone. And how many times have we accused him of it? How many times has the enemy whispered it to us when we were in difficult circumstances ourselves? She is on the corner of mercy and grace because all of heaven is going to be opened up for her in the deep trial that she finds herself in. In the entire Bible, only nine individuals were ever raised to life. And this boy is going to be the first Elijah's about to pray for something that's never happened before. Just to let you know how broad and powerful you might want to make your prayers. Full contact. He's not content to just get on his knees next to the boy and put his hand over his hand, which would be fine. He's like, Lord, I'm serious. I am totally serious. He lays himself on top of the kid. And he's praying with all of his being that his warmth, that his life, that his knowledge of the power of God will change the circumstances. And verse 22 says, The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. And he brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. And so that must have been like a fun moment, if you, if you don't mind my saying so. Look, he says, your son is alive. And she says, I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. She knew that before. But she was a broken-hearted mother who's so thrilled and excited at what God can do. And friends, the battle is the same today. God versus every false God we've got here in America, and across every part of the globe. But I want to tell you that even though they called Baal the storm god, that my God, according to Psalm 29, is the God of glory, thunder. And that while he may seem quiet and difficult to interpret, and is he really here, I'm here to tell you that the rain is coming. It's coming. 
And I don't want any of you that are in the sanctuary to be caught by surprise. When the heavens open up and the Spirit pours down, just as we've been promised since time before. I don't want you to miss it because the Bible promises in 1 Kings that the rain is coming. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond. You think God is quiet in the world, in the culture? I'm here to tell you. He will respond as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of what, friends? Rain in the early spring. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus makes reference to this story. And I'm here to tell you that he even walked in his footsteps when he went to visit the woman of the Syrophoenician woman. Made practically the same journey and went to bring the same message of hope and peace to that woman who had a child who needed him. And so God is weeping over our planet, friends. There is much work to be done, and he wants you to be a part of the power that he wants to unleash on this planet. And isn't it exceptional that here we are feeling safer to gather together? Because even though we were Zooming it for a while, and even though there were only a few of us the last time I was here, the Bible says that where two of you are gathered, God is there in the midst. Not some thought of a God. Not some pretend God, not some pagan God, the I am. And He is, when God says, I am, I am your source, I am your sustenance, I am your resurrection, I am your sustainer, I am God. And you, you are free, friends, you are forgiven, you are chosen, you are seen, known, protected, you are provided for, you are loved beyond measure. And on this Independence Day, my offer, my hope, my desire for you is that you will be completely, completely dependent on him. All right, we're going to sing a little. Are you ready?